Good afternoon. I'm constitutional attorney Catherine Henry, and welcome to my first weekly show of the Restore Freedom efforts to fight for freedom here in the United States. And uh, this is the first of our 2022 series of these videos. My goal is to come to you once each week, hopefully on Monday or Tuesday mornings, and to bring you a structured format for different things that you can look for and expect um, each week. In addition to that, I will still be doing educational videos about different um, uh, statutes that are being passed, different uh, court cases that are coming out, uh, different efforts that you can take, uh, whatever is coming out, I will try to stay on top of it. And if it feels like something that I've got to be the one to share it with you or discuss it with you, um, I will be coming to you live in one of those types of videos as well. Um, but these videos, uh, my weekly um, Restore Freedom show videos, essentially, are going to be more structured. And I'm going to try to remember to not take questions so much in these videos. Um, and perhaps what I may do is if you think that there's questions you have about the topics that I've covered, I um, if there's enough interest, then maybe what I could do is join in a video right afterwards that is just answering questions um, at that point. So those who are interested in essentially watching the video afterwards can um, hear the information or see whatever they need to see in the video and um, not feel like they've got to hang on for a super long video because we had quite a few questions we were answering live at the time. So with that new format uh, being uh, described, um, what I want to do is um, start uh, for all of us right now with um, uh, a little prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day that you've given to us. Thank you for each day that you give us and the skills and abilities that you give us to go through each day and to be able to uh, work on the, the projects and things that you have set before us. Lord, I ask that you use this time right now uh, for me to be able to share your what you want um, everyone to hear, that I'm able to give that legal and constitutional information uh, that so desperately needs to get shared with the public. And um, I pray that you will open up the minds and the eyes and the ears of all who encounter this video so that they can take from this video what it is that you want them to take from it. Uh, we all have something to learn. We can learn something new each day. So Lord, I ask that you are able to help me to use these videos to give that knowledge and information to we the people uh, so we can grow as a country and take back our, our government. Uh, Lord, I also ask that you keep um, everyone involved in this freedom fight safe in their travels, in their freedom fighting efforts, and in their personal lives as well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So um, one thing I want to do is also um, start with um, uh, 
the Bible passage that I think can speak to hopefully all of you, um, but definitely at least some of you. It's a simple one that most uh, uh, of you have already heard, but it is Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, anybody who was on board with our video that we were doing um, just uh, a few minutes ago, uh, telling you where I've been through 2021 and what my goals are uh, for 2022, you heard about some of the insane things that uh, I went through, my family went through in 2021, and the things that kept me from the freedom fight and um, things that really got me down. And I don't want you to be down in, in your life, uh, certainly not in this freedom fight. So please keep in mind that no matter what comes your way, and, and if you are on God's freedom fight, if you are doing the mission that God has set out for you to do, remember that evil is going to come out and attack you at every possible opportunity. So hold strong and remember that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, even the things that seem absolutely impossible. So with that being said, uh, I want to roll right on into our constitutional segment of the day. Um, and that's actually the preamble. And for those of you who didn't catch my little video a minute ago where I described what these weekly videos would look like, I'm actually going to go through a section of the U.S. Constitution and talk about the analogous portion of the Michigan and Florida constitutions. Keeping in mind, I am uh, licensed to practice in Michigan in several federal district courts uh, and, and other courts, um, and even the United States Supreme Court, but I am not licensed specifically to practice in Florida. So keep that in mind when I'm sharing with you elements of what the Florida Constitution has to say. So what I want to share with you in terms of the Constitution today is the preamble. So the U.S. Constitution the preamble is pretty simple, but I'm going to put a strong emphasis on the pieces that I want to pull out for you today. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. Those are really powerful words that many of us have taken for granted. But uh, I would also, I'm going to go a little bit out of order and jump to the Florida State Constitution, um, because it's a little bit more in line with the U.S. Constitution in some ways, which you'll see. So the state of Florida, the Constitution, um, and this says it's the Constitution of the state of Florida as revised in 1968 and subsequently amended, has a preamble that reads, we, the people of the state of Florida, being grateful to Almighty God for our constitutional liberty in order to secure its benefits, perfect our government, ensure domestic tranquility, maintain public order, and guarantee equal civil and political rights to all, 
do ordain and establish this constitution. That's got a lot in there too, but I want you to focus on the fact that there's no denying that these are rights given to us by God, that the constitution is here to protect. Uh, also, just food for thought, uh, the, the words separation of church and state don't appear anywhere in the text of any of these constitutions. Okay, so moving on. Some uh, a constitutional provision that many of you have heard me say before, but the Michigan State Constitution, the Constitution of the State of Michigan of 1963, as subsequently amended, the preamble reads that we, the people of the state of Michigan, grateful to almighty God for the blessings of freedom and earnestly desiring to secure these blessings undiminished to ourselves and our posterity, do, or, do ordain and establish this constitution. Literally, the whole thing is about the blessings of freedom and securing those blessings, nothing else. Not even any of the other stuff that the other two constitutions I mentioned uh, that I read from that they mentioned. So I want you to think about that. And it's particularly um, important because I don't know if I can find it here, but I was just reminded of something that I saw in the um, Michigan Supreme Court and something that they just came out with um, in, um, give me just a second, bear with me, it's important. Um, well, shoot, I'm going to find it later and I'll be kicking myself that I couldn't have found it sooner, but, ah, of course now I did find it. Okay, so this is from a case that I'll describe in full detail in uh, one of the next segments here, but I did wanna read to you this little part here, that our constitution, meaning the Michigan State Constitution, this is written by Justice Viviano and the majority court in the Michigan uh, Supreme Court. Our constitution is unique and our obligation is to protect and defend the Michigan constitution, not to render opinions that conform to the law of other states. Just something to keep in mind. So when I read to you the Michigan State Constitution preamble and how it is solely focused on protecting um, and securing the blessings of freedom from Almighty God undiminished to ourselves and our, our posterity, um, that is a unique element that um, everyone who has sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution has a duty to remember. Um, so with that being said, um, well, it's going to, my legal update is going to take me a little bit longer than what I wanted, um, because it's an interesting case. Uh, so what I wanted to do was jump, um, ahead and give you the three resources that I want you to check out three resources that I think will help you in your, um, uh, sorry, I normally won't answer questions, but very quickly, I see somebody is saying um, separation between church and state does not exist as such. But are you saying that the establishment clause is erroneous? Um, the, 
the interesting thing is um, I will definitely do a full video on the Establishment Clause, uh, but the Establishment Clause doesn't say anything about God not existing or about the fact that our government isn't based on God, because our government literally is based upon the fact that God exists, God gives us our freedoms, and the Constitution's job, the government's sole purpose is to have um, an organizational structure and a set of rules that best ensure our God-given liberties are protected not only from each other, but from the government itself. So again, I'll go into much more detail in a later video. Um, and if you think that you have certain topics that you would like me to cover in um, full-length videos about certain topics, please send them over uh, to contact at restorefreedomkh.com. You can send us an email. I can't guarantee we will end up doing an email on that or even that we will necessarily have the opportunity to respond because we do get thousands of requests and emails on a regular basis. But um, it will mean a lot to us if we have a particular one that strikes us as, oh my goodness, yes, this is something we need to cover. Or certainly if um, you have uh, uh, several people all asking for the same kind of thing. So, um, okay, so what I wanted to do is jump to those three resources to check out. And I'm going to go into share, let's see, um, share mode. Um, let's see. Okay. So, um, let me see if I, um, maybe that, that doesn't seem to make it any bigger, does it? Nope. That doesn't either. Okay. So, um, it is what it is. I was hoping to make that part bigger. Hopefully you can still see. Uh, I apologize if you cannot, but, um, I'm going to the first and the link is actually written in the description of this video, but this, um, this link is one that I've talked about before. It is the Michigan legislature. Mind you, almost every single state has a similar one. Certainly Florida does too, but I am, uh, for simplicity's sake, just sticking with the Michigan version. This um, is the link to the Michigan legislature's bills. Now you can look up um, prior bills and you can look up current bills. So it defaults to the 2021-2022 legislative session because that's the session they're in right now. But you can do a drop down and at least in Michigan, you can search um, all the way back to the 1989 to 1990 legislative session and see bills. And then you can put in the bill number. You can even search by keywords. You can also just browse bills by session uh, that came out either from the House or the Senate. You can search by category, by sponsor, if you want to look for a particular, um, which bills a particular legislator has sponsored. Um, bills by which public acts have been affected. Um, you know, uh, you can see basically anything you want to know about every bill uh, right there. And that's going to be important considering my um, uh, way to get involved. I'm going to come back and share this with you in just a minute. Um, but anyway, this is for bills in Michigan. And it's very important. Like I said, the direct link is actually um, in the 
description of the video. But honestly, I if you Googled bills in Michigan legislature, you would probably get to the same result. Um, I also included calendars. Um, this one is very important because this link gives you the most recent calendars for um, the House, for the Senate. Uh, you could see both. You can actually go back and look at different legislative sessions. Um, you can look for keywords that might have existed um, for different events and things. But you can see the different calendars that have been posted right here on the page. It automatically just shows you December 9th, 2021 through uh, January 12th, 2022 for both the Michigan House and the Michigan um, Senate. So um, please make sure to look at these because one way to get involved, you might decide that you want to know when certain committee meetings are or when um, different, um, you know, actions or different votes are being taken or when legislate uh, when the legislators are actually be there. Um, get to get to know this part of the website and you'll understand uh, the ins and outs of different timing on things. The third resource that I want to provide to you and get you a little bit more familiar with today, um, also on the Michigan Legislature website, is uh, the link specifically for committee meetings. Now, as of today, this link, which is also in the description of the video, uh, says that um, House meetings, there are no House meetings currently scheduled at this time, and the same thing for the Michigan Senate. But you can go to the Michigan House of Representatives Committee's webpage, which is um, right down here, um, and the Michigan Senate Committee's webpage, which is right below that. Um, hopefully, even though it's super tiny for most of you, hopefully you could see where I'm circling on the page. Um, but uh, you can sort by um, a variety of things up here. Um, you can even click to add um, a certain event to your calendar right here that is um, giving you the little indication of which button that when you do see that there are different things on the calendar, you'll be able to um, take those committee meetings and click a button and be able to add those instantly to your own calendar. So if you want to go and provide public comment, if you just want to observe the committee meeting, um, if you want to learn how things are done, uh, if you just want to learn more about what each committee does, um, that would be a perfect opportunity to give you that information. So um, that then leads me to the next shorter segment of this uh, weekly video, which is one way to get involved with grassroots efforts. So this week, my challenge to you, and I apologize that um, it is severely overcast here all of a sudden, so I'm losing my normal lighting and um, it might make things look um, more um, different or, or whatnot. So hopefully that's not causing any problem. Uh, for you on your end of watching this video. But um, at any rate, the the next segment, um, the one way to get involved with grassroots efforts that I want you to do, that my challenge to you this week is to research, specifically research your state representative. Now, I don't remember offhand how many states have a unicameral legislature. I know when I was living in Minnesota, they had uh, recently switched to a unicameral le uh, legislature. So they only have the one. Um, but um, in most states, you have a state senator and you have a state representative. So this week, my challenge to you is to research your state representative. I want you to know 
who that person is. Way too many people don't even know who that person is by name. I want you to know what district number you're in. Now, I realize that in most places, certainly in Michigan right now, those district numbers are being redone, but you can know what district number you're in right now. Um, I want you to know which party your uh, representative claims to belong to. Uh, I want you to know which term are they in? Is this a first term? Is this the first term that they're serving as a legislator or have they been in for a while? So for example, I want to say it might be the 72nd district in Michigan. Uh, Steve Johnson, um, what year is this? Am I losing my mind? <laughs> he would be a third term. Um, that's, that's what I'm talking about. Someone who has served for three times. Um, I want you to look at um, what bills they have sponsored. Now, so that's where I'm going to bring us back to the bills um, um, searching on the Michigan State Legislature website where you can go to sponsor. I'm going to make a big circling motion in case you guys can see that better when my screen is so tiny. But the um, by sponsor section, you can click on that. And it'll give you a drop down at the very beginning uh, for which legislative session. And it defaults, you know, of course, to the current legislative session. But uh, you can go back and um, end up, you know, looking at different legislative sessions. Um, and you can say, I will only want to know who was the primary sponsor. Or you can say, well, I want to know, I'm interested in learning which ones that my particular state rep not only was the primary sponsor, but might have also been a secondary sponsor. Somebody who was essentially, yeah, I'll put my name on that. But they weren't the main one um, responsible for that. So just to give you an example, um, right now, um, we'll click on both and we'll say um, Thomas Albert. He is the 86th district state representative. Um, he beat me in the primary in 2016, 2015. I don't even know what year it was. Um, and so I'll pick on him and see. Um, so it's showing that in the current legislative session uh, that we have um, let's see, starting with, are these in order? These are not, uh, in any kind of order. Uh, the last action, for example, on one of these is showing, um, June 10th, 2021, he submitted or sponsored a house resolution, uh, to declare June 10th, 2021 as Alcoholics Anonymous Day in the state of Michigan, something that I can almost guarantee you State Representative Steve Johnson would say absolutely not. He wouldn't vote for or support that because he doesn't think that's the purpose of government. Um, so um, I am so sorry, guys, but hang on just one minute because there is a really obnoxious sound coming from the other room. And I just want to make sure if there's anything that I could do to stop it. I don't know if any of you are hearing it, but give me one second. I will be right back. Okay, I'm also going to try to shed some light on this. Oh, that's probably not going to work. We'll see. Nope, not going to work. Okay. All right, guys, this is why I'm going to do videos, hopefully when the sunlight cooperates and then we can have appropriate lighting in here. But um, at any rate, so it does, um, it tells us um, 
also the house bills that he has uh, sponsored. So um, let me see. I'm looking for something in particular. Um, school aid. So he sponsored House Bill 4048 of 2021, school aid to provide supplemental school funding, and it would affect uh, Michigan. Um, uh, Oh my gosh, I'm losing all my words today. MCL 388.1611 and uh, the subsequent sections. And it would add sections uh, 11N, 11O, 11R, et cetera. It's adding a bunch of sections. Um, and this says that the last time anything was done on this was that um, March 9th, 2021, um, there was a motion to override a line item and it failed the roll call vote. It got 37 yays and 65 nays, 44 excused. That's interesting. I would be very curious to hear why 44 legislators were excused from voting. Seems like it's their job. At any rate, um, so again, I'm just picking on him um, because uh, it was he's one of the first that show up because his last name starts with an A. Um, and definitely someone I know. Um, so anyway, you can see through um, all the bills that he has sponsored uh, throughout this legislative session. Um, the one that shows at the bottom uh, is House Bill 5, uh, 5559 of 2021, Criminal Procedure Sentencing Guidelines. Um, and it specifically is talking about sentencing guidelines for knowingly performing research on a dead fetus, embryo, or neonate obtained from an abortion. So it was creating a criminal um, uh, sentencing guideline for that as a crime. Um, based on that brief description there, uh, more power to you, Thomas Albert. That is um, seemingly a, oh, and the one right before it, I guess I should have looked there. House Bill uh, 5558, Health, abortion, knowingly performing research on a dead fetus, embryo, or neonate obtained from an abortion, it's to prohibit. So um, it was essentially cr making it a crime to um, do research on um, a dead fetus um, or um, embryo. So at any rate, uh, it made it to the second reading on December 7th of that uh, of 2021 for that bill. So I'd be interested to read more on that. But anyway, that gives you information. My challenge to you is that you research your state rep. Like I said, you research and it doesn't matter what state you're in, you can do this. Um, but in Michigan, this particular um, way is how you can do that easily. Um, know who that person is, know what district number you're in, know which party your state rep says they belong to, know which term they are in. If they've been a state rep for 75 years because your state doesn't have uh, term limits, okay, you know, know that. If uh, they're a third term state rep, um, then in Michigan, that means they've been around um, as long as they possibly can in that particular position. Um, know which bills they've sponsored in the past and currently and go ahead and Google your state rep. Find out what you can about him or her. Not everything you hear is going to be or see is going to be accurate. No, of course not. Not everything on the internet is true. But it'll give you that idea about their media presence. And do they have social media accounts? Do they post? Do they, um, you know, are they in the news a lot? What kinds of things are they in the news for? And it'll give you... Um, um, it, that information. Um, 
Uh, and Concetta uh, just asked me, why do I really care about Michigan anymore? Apparently, uh, she missed the video where I indicated I'm still a Michigan uh, licensed practicing attorney. Um, two of my adult children still live there. Uh, my parents live in Michigan. My grandparents, my um, one of my sisters and my brother, uh, my brothers, uh, my brother-in-law and my two sisters-in-law, my uh, friends and family and neighbors and don't you know, I was born in the UP. I am a Michigander by, by blood. My grandma and my mom were all born in the same community as me. And uh, Michigan is always going to be a part of me. Um, but I, when my parents got divorced, I grew up in Florida. And Florida is just as much a part of me as Michigan is. So I will always care about Michigan and fight for the freedom of Michiganders, uh, regardless of where my current physical uh, locale is. Um, so that is my challenge to you for the week on getting involved with grassroots efforts. Now that might not seem like that's actually getting out and doing something, but I guarantee the more you know, the more you're going to be able to do the things later on that I'm going to suggest that you do, whether it's write a letter, write an email, make a phone call, show up to a committee meeting. Uh, if you know who your state rep is and you know about them and you know what bills they're sponsoring and you just know the kinds of things that they work on or that they say they're passionate about, you're going to be a lot more um, prepared to be able to engage with your state rep when uh, those suggestions are made in weeks down the road. Um, so quickly, as quickly as I can, um, my take on a current... Um, um, event or topic and the constitutionality of that, my husband um, suggested to me that um, something that's actually happening in Texas and Florida and certainly in Michigan and making national news in Michigan is um, relating to the constitutional obligation of the government uh, regarding people who are dead or um, not legal um, citizens of the United States being on the voter rolls. And with what we see, um, what um, sorry, give me a second. Um, okay. um, somebody I think is just complaining about me, but um, quite frankly, I can't read uh, all the comments coming from all the different streams on Facebook and Twitter and YouTube all at the same time. And nor is that what this segment is going to be for. If you don't like what I have to say, just click the button that closes the window where you're watching me. If you do like what I have to say, then stay on board. Uh, I'd love to give more information to you and encourage you in your freedom fight. Um, but uh, there comes a point where engaging in the negative um, arguing and um, things that really don't serve any good purpose whatsoever, I'm just going to have to ignore it, even if I do see it. Uh, most of the time, I just, I simply can't keep up on all, all the, the comments, whether they're positive or negative. Um, but back to the um, my take on the um, the actions of government officials when it comes to keeping the voter rolls um, accurate, it's 
It's definitely in Michigan, it'd be the Secretary of State. It is her job. It is literally her job to, uh, under the Michigan election law, to the legislature bestowed upon the Secretary of State the tasks relating specifically to running elections and to ensuring the integrity of elections. And in fact, it is also written into the language of the Michigan State Constitution. So we need to make sure that only people who are alive are on the voter records, that only people who are legally allowed to vote are on the voter records, that only citizens and residents of the state of Michigan, for example, are allowed to vote in a Michigan election. Um, and I will say it's kind of interesting. What happened to us um, was uh, a little bit backwards, I would say, when we sold our house in Michigan, and um, I I don't know if it was just when the recording you know is is done electronically now when it, when the deed was recorded that we sold the house, or if it was because I also was serving as the township trustee, uh, and I had just. Um, shared the information to um, the township board that I was no longer, you know, I was resigning because I was, um, you know, no longer um, going to be there. Um, but at some point, it seemed a little bit premature that I instantly got a notification from, um, and I can't remember who it was. It wasn't actually the township clerk. Um, it was somebody else that they had unregistered uh, myself and my husband as voters uh, and in Georgetown Township. And I thought, wait a second, you can't do that because I'm not a resident yet of the new place of Florida. Um, we, you know, were having home base out of my mom's apartment in Michigan. Um, but our residence, um, was still technically in Michigan. Our driver's licenses still had our Hudsonville address and, um, you know, we um, had every right to be able to be a voter somewhere. So um, it was very interesting to me that they automatically, and again, I don't know what it is that that took them, that gave them that step to do, um, but whatever it was, they heard it through the rumor mill or whatever, but they took us off and sent us a postcard that they removed us from the voter rolls. So I guess that's the other, the other side of things, but um, at any rate, the um, uh, most uh, of the time it works backwards than that. It, it works where, you know, people um, are left on after they've moved out of state or they have passed away or there's all kinds of fictitious people that are on. And uh, that, um, in fact, is a severe problem because when you dilute the vote with thousands and thousands of voters that don't actually exist or have the right to vote. Um, you're, what you're doing is you're, you're you're, those votes are diluting uh, the vote and the voice of the people who the Constitution is there to protect. And the government's job is to protect them. Um, so um, that's, it, it's a duty. It is an absolute duty that the Secretary of State um, and your township clerks and your city clerks and, and all of those in between 
it is their job to make sure that every aspect of the voter registration records are up to date as much as possible. And quite frankly, there probably should be a way that you can have, you know, your email or a cell phone number or something attached to those records so that if something goes wrong, you know, you get an absentee ballot in the mail and you actually don't get it, somebody else got it. Uh, it, there's some sort of, you know, electronic record that says, hey, we sent this to you. If you did not receive it, please let us know. Or you can go to the, um, you know, your government office and show them your ID and say, hey, look, it's me. I didn't get that. Um, that actually happened to me. I uh, went to vote. I want to say it was on election day after the whole Allegan County fiasco. I went to my own precinct in um, um, Georgetown Township to be able to vote. And the, at first I was told I couldn't vote because I'd already voted absentee. And I'm like, the heck I did. I didn't receive an absentee ballot. I didn't apply for an absentee ballot. Uh, you certainly didn't get me voting in any way, shape or form before today, right now. And you can't stop me from voting. So that's essentially the same kind of disenfranchisement that exists when um, you litter the, um, the whole um, landscape with um, voters that aren't real voters or don't have a legal right to vote. Um, so that brings me to the last segment of this video for the week, um, for my weekly video, that is, uh, which is my legal update. And for this legal update, it is actually um, a very important case that probably I have not heard it anywhere in the media. And my daily radio station is still a Michigan, a West Michigan radio station. Um, and I haven't seen it come up on social media or anything. So maybe I've missed it. But um, it is something very important that I think that needs to get out there a little bit more. Um, so give me just a second here. And okay. So uh, this terrible lighting now that the clouds are in full thickness and the sun is starting to go down uh, and all you have is the bright glow of my computer. Um, it um, is kind of with a little bit of excitement that I announced to you about the Detroit News versus the Independent uh, Citizens Redistricting Commission. That is the title of the case. And it is, um, it was argued on um, December uh, 15th. So just, you know, less than a month ago. And it was decided only five days later, December 20th. Um, and there's a reason for that. But uh, let me do my best to give you the best uh, about this. There's some uh, some of the basics about what happened in this case, which are very important to let you know about. But there's also the undertones and things that were said uh, that have an impact on other cases. And then there's also, um, again, uh, another aspect of the case where there's a different uh, philosophy about the case or whatnot. Um, give me one second. I am going to try to change the lighting by doing one thing. Okay, maybe that helped a little. I don't know. Maybe not. Okay, so um, so this case, like I said, is the Detroit News uh, versus the Independent Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. Um, and in this case, the majority opinion was authored by Justice Viviano. He was joined by Justice Zara Bernstein and Clement. Uh, Clement um, joined in part. She also dissented in part. Um, so the main aspects of this case, uh, 
Um, as described by Justice Viviano, in 2018, the voters of Michigan, supposedly, I'm still not believing it, uh, chose to vest responsibility for redistricting, not in its legislature as had been done for decades past, but in an independent, unelected uh, bureaucratic body. The body they created is called the Independent District, Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. And throughout this opinion, they're just calling that uh, body the commission. So I'll probably do that myself just for um, ease of discussion. The body consists of 13 commissioners generally selected on a random basis from a pool of applicants. Um, and that's you can find that part um, in Mich the Michigan State Constitution, Article 4, Section 6, Subsection 2. Um, in placing, and again, these are the words of Justice Viviano and the, and the majority, in placing the redistricting power with an independent body of unelected officials, the voters chose to ring the body with transparency requirements forcing much, if not all, of the commission's work into the daylight. Uh, so to give you the little bit more of the background and understanding of what's going on, the plaintiffs are a group of news organizations and press seeking to enforce the transparency requirements of this new constitutional provision. Uh, and Justice Viviano makes an important note that in addition to the individual news outlets, the plaintiffs in this case include the Michigan Press Association, which is the official trade association for the various newspapers in Michigan and its executive director. So um, the commission is, of course, charged with redrawing the redistricting plans for our state and federal legislative district uh, districts. Um, and the language of the Constitution that says that specifically is uh, state constitution, Article 4, Section 6. The commission shall adopt a redistricting plan for each of the following types of districts, state Senate districts, state House of Representative districts, and congressional districts. Um, then <clears throat> uh, Justice Viviano says that pursuant, pursuant to that duty, the commission must consult with and provide information to the public. I mean, that seems really obvious, but that is the whole you know, thrust of, of this entire case. Um, before any drafting begins, the commission must hold at least 10 public hearings and receive materials from the public. Then after developing at least one proposed redistricting plan for each type of district, the commission shall publish the proposed redistricting plans and any data and supporting materials used to develop the plans. That is um, Article 4, Section 6, Subsection 9. So it says the first proposed plans were published on October 11th. So at that point, that's when um, all of the information that they had been reviewing, the supporting information, the data and everything needed to be shared. Um, what's interesting is that um, Justice Viviano points out in another footnote that it is worth noting that the dates do not conform, the dates that the commission did all this in Michigan this last fall and, and into the current time, um, does not conform to the constitutionally imposed deadlines for the proposal or the adoption of plans, according to Article 4, Section 6, Subsection 7. 
the commission even filed a previous lawsuit requesting authority to disregard these deadlines because of the delay in obtaining federal census data. But this court, meaning the Michigan Supreme Court, denied the request because we were not persuaded the, re the requested relief should be granted. So it's interesting that the, the commission um, had this excuse for why they wanted to throw out the constitutionally imposed deadlines to do their job. And even though the Supreme Court said, no, you can do your job on time, the commission still violated the state constitution in that respect. And then they continued to violate it in several other respects. The, um, so one of the problems that the plaintiffs raised is that the commission voted to enter a closed session discussion on October 27th to consider two memoranda that came from their attorneys. They also had a series of, um, in total, 10 memoranda that they considered, but that they did not make public. They claimed that those memoranda were completely covered by attorney-client privilege and so therefore they did not need to disclose that information to the public. Um, so as the efforts were ongoing though, the court points out that a bipartisan pair of legislators asked the attorney general to produce an opinion on whether the commission violated the constitution by conducting a closed session. Now listen to this. My props goes out to the Michigan Attorney General. The Michigan Attorney General, I don't know for sure if it's Dana Nessel herself or one of somebody that works for her, but I'm just going to give her the credit because it's her title that's on this. She did a phenomenal job. Now, granted, I didn't read her whole opinion, but I'm reading the parts that are referenced by this case and by these justices here. It says that the attorney general concluded that the meeting needed to be open under Michigan Constitution 1963, Article 4, Section 6, Subsection 10, and that the memoranda considered at the meeting needed to be published under Subsection 9. And that was an opinion um, 7,317 that was issued on November 22nd. However, the commission was completely unfazed, as the word that was used by the Michigan Supreme Court here, by the Michigan Attorney General's analysis. And the commission continued to deny the public and specifically here, the media, the requested information. So the um, plaintiffs filed the emergency action in the Michigan Supreme Court, which had original jurisdiction under section subsection 19 of the section we've been talking about. So the court, uh, the plaintiffs didn't have to go to some trial court and then appeal and then appeal and then maybe eventually work their way up to the Michigan Supreme Court. This was one of those things that gave the Michigan Supreme Court um, original jurisdiction so the plaintiffs could file this action right away, right with the Michigan Supreme Court and not waste any time whatsoever. Because the redistricting thing is kind of a thing that's happening like right now. So everything is very timely. Um, okay. So um, for what it's worth, I can't see what's happening. Um, I um, just see that somebody seems to be possibly um, 
harassing my husband and whether he's right or wrong, I will say he is my husband and I love him dearly. And I would ask that you respect him um, because our lives have been turned upside down and made kind of a living hell um, as we've gone through this freedom fight. So I don't know what you guys are going back and forth with on comments, but um, I just wanted to put that out there. Um, so um, next, this case talks about, um, so they're talking about the, the whole battle is, does the attorney-client privilege protect the commission from giving information to the public? Are they allowed to hide behind attorney-client privilege and hold closed sessions and keep memoranda to themselves and keep, you know, essentially information away from the public? And um, the overall opinion from the court, I'll tell you, that they said was no. Um, Attorney-client privilege does not apply the same way to governmental bodies and agencies as it does to um, a typical private entity or client. Um, so the court also points out that um, the court interprets the Constitution by the ordinary meaning of terms. It might seem simple, but take that at face value. The court is supposed to interpret the Constitution by the ordinary meaning of the words. <clears throat> That's very important for every case. And they also point out that nothing in the text of the state Constitution itself references any attorney-client privilege or protections uh, that this commission or any government body would enjoy just you know, to be able to hide information from the public. That's not in the language of the Constitution. So to me, right then and there, the conversation should have ended, uh, the discussion should have been over, and it should have been in order to immediately disclose all information to essentially undo what came out of the meeting on October 27th, and certainly to release the video or audio uh, recordings from that meeting. But um, the court continues, um, that um, attorney-client privilege is important, okay? It, it is important because it allows people to be open and honest and candid with their lawyers. Lawyers have a job. They have a duty to be open and honest with um, the court and with opposing counsel. And that doesn't mean you have to expose all of your client's secrets and whatnot. But if you don't know the truth about things, if your client is hiding certain aspects because they're afraid that that communication is going to all get out in front of the court, then you can't do your job well as an attorney. I've had clients, you know, totally blindside me um, when I, you know, doing a custody case, um, I you know, thoroughly uh, vet the client, vet the situation. The client doesn't think there's something that they should tell me about. And lo and behold, we're in the middle of a trial or an evidentiary hearing and something comes out where, um, dang, I could have done a lot better to represent their interests had I been given a little heads up that something might be an issue. Even if it really is a non-issue, if I don't have the ability to uh, know ahead of time that it's coming, I can't do my job. So attorney-client privilege is meant to help uh, the attorney be able to do a good job in representing their client's interests. But it's not supposed to be the kind of thing that they can then turn around and use in a governmental setting to keep information away from the public. If anything, it's supposed to be used. In fact, um, let me see here. Um, 
Oh, the court really does a good job of explaining um, the purpose here. And I, I don't want to try to reinvent the wheel. I want to give you the court's own words um, on that particular point. So, okay. So it basically talks about that there would be um, a radically uneven playing field in court if you had, you know, uh, one side was essentially able to go and um, learn about all the inner workings of the attorney-client information and conversations that were happening on the other side of the case. Uh, you need to be able to have those open and candid discussions with your attorney. So that I agree with. That I would think everybody would agree with. Um, what's different is when it's a government body. Certainly the biggest difference. So um, in fact, uh, this court quotes from um, a an initially a 19, or excuse me, an 1888 United States Supreme Court case, and then subsequently a 1981 United States Supreme Court case, but saying that although the attorney-client privilege is the oldest of the privileges for confidential communications, um, and it, in, it is founded upon the necessity in the interests and just and, and interest and administration of justice of the aid of persons having knowledge of the law and skilled in its practice, which assistance can only be safely and readily availed when free from the consequences or the apprehension of disclosure, which is essentially the long way of saying what I just said to you. So I'm not going to restate that now. Um, so, um, Okay. Well, uh, okay. Uh, I don't know exactly what's going on in uh, the chat. I just saw something pop up. Um, uh, this particular thing, this video, this weekly video that we're going to be doing to give information to you, um, the point of it isn't to have a bunch of debate by people on the chat. Now, if you have debate, that's fine. But if it's um, going to be something where it's a distraction to the purpose of the video, which is to provide information on the topics that we're presenting, then it doesn't seem like it's very purposeful and you should probably not be on there. Um, I think um, what my husband would ask of you, again, I, he's not in the same room with me. I don't see, I haven't seen what he's saying, so I'm not, you know, defending any particular position, but I'm guessing based on a little bit I see here from somebody else's comment is that my husband is saying, if you're going to do something that is um, to try to undermine or question or argue with something that I'm trying to present to you, but you're not willing to share your real name uh, in the context of giving that harassment or um, unsolicited comment, uh, then perhaps this isn't the right forum to do that. So um, I guess I would agree with that. If you are wanting to essentially give me a hard time, uh, in whatever format that may look like, you should be willing to do that under your own name and to stand on your own two feet and say, okay, hey, I'm Joe Smith. And I think that you got it wrong, Catherine. I think uh, the government should be able to do whatever they want or whatever your position is on a comment. So um, I would ask that if you want to take up some sort of heated debate with a position I'm I'm doing, um, yeah, go ahead and, and 
don't be afraid to have your name in there. Um, so at any rate, I don't know what else um, the the arguing is going back and forth on, but um, um, that's I guess that's all I'll say about that. Um, so um, the um, what's very interesting I want to point out is that there has been some um, some other cases where. Um, people are basically told that they have to have an attorney represent them. And um, I think it's very important that this Michigan Supreme Court case from less than two weeks ago is referencing United States Supreme Court cases um, from well over 100 years ago and then from um, over, you know, well, over 40 years ago that underscore the concept that attorneys are there, they're knowledgeable and skilled, uh, knowledgeable in the law and skilled in the practice of law, but they are there to provide assistance and aid. That Those are the, the language, those, those are the words that are being talked about here. Um, it's not for attorneys to do everything for people. People should be allowed to represent themselves in a case and to um, decide whether or not they want attorneys. And if they want an attorney to be there in a particular case by their side, uh, to be able to offer counsel or suggestions or advice, great. But it's it's a side note that is not at all what this case is about, but it goes to something that is extremely important. And that's, it's our fundamental right to be able to represent our own interests um, in any kind of government setting without having to have somebody represent uh, without having to have uh, an attorney represent our interests for us. Uh, and I took that as a duh, like a for granted moment uh, until really in the last year, I've seen more and more of that pop up where people are being told, nope, you don't have access to this court or you don't have access in this governmental setting unless you have legal counsel representing you. And that's a load of garbage. You should never be forced to hire an attorney. Um, so, um, let's see. Um, I also think it's important that the court points out that the dissent in the case, the parties to the case, the majority of the court, um, nobody was able to find any kind of opinion from the Michigan Supreme Court at any stage in, in history, um, that applied attorney client privilege or the work product um, doctrine to protect governmental bodies ever. So there's no precedent for doing that. It's very important to think about it that way. Um, and there are other cases such as in the federal courts in Michigan, this court points out that the scope of attorney client privilege um, specifically is narrower uh, even though it does exist for governmental bodies, it exists in a much narrower capacity uh, than it does for, you know, a private person. Um, and the purpose of the privilege, attorney-client privilege, is not to protect communications, which are statements of policy or interpretations adopted by an agency. So that was actually... Um, that Michigan, um, Eastern District of Michigan case from 1979. But they're saying basically if an attorney is giving a governmental body, a um, in this particular case, I don't know if it said, um, 
well, it was the IRS actually, but if it's giving a governmental body, a city, um, uh, a city council, a township board, um, a redistricting commission, whoever, right? Any kind of governmental body or governmental agency, if uh, an attorney is giving a legal opinion to that agency, um, that agency is a governmental body. They can't just hide behind attorney-client privilege and say, oh, but we don't have to give this information, this legal information to the public. No, if you're going to rely on that as authority and you're going to create your policies all around this information that's given to you by this attorney, then it should be public. All of it should be public. I mean, I honestly can't even believe we're arguing about this. Um, and uh, another court um, said, uh, and this is the Montana Supreme Court in 2018, um, and the Michigan Supreme Court is quoting them, that it is plain then that in a court's review of a claimed privilege, when a citizen seeks governmental information, it should not treat the privileges as sacrosanct, particularly in light of the presumption of openness the Constitution endows. And then the court continues by saying what well, limitations there would be in implying some sort of privilege. So, you know, it's obvious that the Constitution is requiring openness by governmental entities to the public because we are a government of the people. It's the government works for we the people. We don't answer to and serve the government. That's not how this whole thing is designed. Um, and in fact, um, this it, the Michigan Supreme Court is quoting here, um, saying that as a threshold matter, the attorney client and work product privileges belong to and benefit their public sector clients, not the lawyers. Unlike their pri private adversaries, state and local government entities exist for the sole purpose of serving the public. I just want to underscore that point again. State and local government entities exist for the sole purpose of serving the public. So I don't care what case you're talking about or what um, piece you're trying to fight for in the freedom movement, or um, quite frankly, if you're a Republican, Democrat, it doesn't matter. Remember that. We the people don't answer to, and we're not accountable to, our state representatives and our legislative bodies and our government officials. They are answerable and accountable to us because they serve the public. In fact, the sole purpose for which they exist is to serve the public. I told you guys, this is a phenomenal opinion that goes beyond what the actual case was originally about. Unlike the attorney-client privilege, there is no legal tradition, unlike the private attorney-client privilege, there is no legal tradition of a government privilege. Why would there be? The most persuasive argument against extending the privilege to government lawyers is that, um, uh, the, is that in the public practice of law, the ultimate client might be the general public and not the public official. So think about it. They're saying that with uh, attorney-client privilege or attorney work product doctrine, things that keep information or 
you know, um, documents shrouded in this confidentiality, right? Um, that when you take that and you apply it in a government setting where the attorney is working for a government agency or a government official, in the end, the ultimate client is the general public, not that particular government official. And it should always be viewed that way because I don't care what agency you work for, what level of government you work for, how many years of service you've had. If you work for the government, you work for the people and you should always be answerable to and accountable to the general public. Um, so very interesting things that are in here. Um, um, let's see. I mean, this thing I have blue highlighted like all over on almost every page. So let me try to pull out the most important things here. Um, so it's also important that the court is saying that even though attorney client privilege and um, work product doctrines are grounded in the common law, meaning they've been around forever, they haven't just been created by the legislature in a statute, but they've been things that the courts have recognized for years. Um, the court says here that those privileges and protections, they're creatures of common law and the common law must give way to the Constitution to the extent that they are repugnant to the Constitution. So again, it goes beyond what this particular case is about with attorney-client privilege or giving information to the public. But think about it. Anytime the common law, and you have anybody that talks about the common law or they want to you know, rely on something from the common law, anytime the common law, which is just what cases have said throughout the years, Anytime the common law is repugnant to the Constitution, to the extent that it would shield something that the Constitution requires to be disclosed, for example, the Constitution must prevail. Those are literally the words from this opinion. So um, I think those are very important aspects. Uh, and the court says this is because public bodies work on behalf of the public rather than for private interests. And a broad application of the attorney-client privilege would impede the flow of information to the public on whose behalf the work is being undertaken. This concern would be especially acute with regard to this commission which is unelected and unaccountable to the public through the traditional democratic process. So uh, the, the court then talks about what an author, um, Green, was talking about in this um, law review article, uh, Redistricting Transparency. Um, and quoted this part, that a common critique of independent commissions is that they take power from accountable members of state legislators only to put it in the hands of unelected and unaccountable commission members, which is true and it's a problem and probably a discussion for a whole other day. To combat this concern, independent commissions employ a variety of mechanisms to enable public oversight and participation. So again, the, the mechanisms that enable, enable that oversight and participation by the public are extremely important and can't be overlooked. 
Um, so when you have a closed session in any closed session of government, that should be frowned upon in general, but some sort of extraordinary circumstance why that would be necessary. But certainly in this situation where the whole body was literally created because they no longer trusted the legislature to do the job that they have now assigned to this body. Um, and then it points to um, the Florida Supreme Court, the, this court, the Michigan Supreme Court, says that similar concerns have led the Florida Supreme Court to deny the Florida state's legislature the full scope of the legislative privilege against disclosure of documents with regard to materials related to the legislature's compliance with constitutional redistricting criteria. And that was a case that came out of the Florida Supreme Court in 2013. So Michigan, Florida, they see it the same way. The information should be disclosed to the public because the redistricting process in particular is extremely vital and important to the ability of the people to have their voice heard properly at the polls. If you have a redistricting problem, if the districts themselves are drawn in a way that disenfranchises voters or does something illegal or some other way wrong, then the voters have lost their vote. They no longer have the same voice at the polls and our whole system is, um, it crumbles. That's why election integrity is so important. That's why these cases in the Michigan uh, setup of things in the Michigan constitution are fast tracked right to the Michigan uh, Supreme Court. So, um, okay. The, um, I'm just skipping over stuff that I really wanted to share with you, but it's going to take too long to share it all. Um, so what's interesting is that the commission, the the uh, um, Michigan's uh, Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission, right? Um, this public body, it's pointing to the OMA, the Open Meetings Act of Michigan. And um, it's as, as a reason to say that they get to hide behind... Uh, attorney-client privilege or to be able to have a closed session. And the interesting thing here, though, is that the Michigan Supreme Court um, points out that, okay, you point to the OMA, but the OMA expressly provides that all decisions of a public body must be made at a meeting, meeting open to the public. The MCL for that is 15.263 subdivision 2. So keep that in mind, too. This case isn't about the OMA itself, but the OMA was brought in. And keep in mind, if you are a public body or if you are an individual who is just starting to get involved with the freedom fighting movement and you want to know more about what government bodies are supposed to do and government meetings are supposed to look like, keep in mind that all all decisions of public bodies must be made at a meeting open to the public. That's the underlying thread through it all. Um, if the only meetings that needed to be conducted in the open were those at which decisions are made, then the commission could operate almost entirely in secret, popping out into the open only to cast a decisional vote on matters discussed and deliberated on in private. So the Supreme Court is saying that even getting and receiving information and deliberating on the vote, even if the vote itself isn't taken at that meeting, 
uh, the meeting still has to be in public because these are the essential elements of um, the whole process that need to be disclosed to the public. And um, activity necessary. Well, I'm going to come back to this one. I need to come back to that one. So, okay. Um, the October 27th meeting, um, the court is saying it did address business of the commission. So therefore it had to be open to the public. So the court ordered that the recordings from that meeting be immediately released to the plaintiffs and to the public. Um, it'd be interesting to see where those recordings are. Um, and I don't know where the meetings are uh, taking place. Um, so the court points out here that as the commission itself acknowledges, the memoranda that they considered at the meetings involved how to bring the maps into compliance with federal law. Um, the commission was arguing that the meeting itself and then the memoranda it's, um, that they relied on and those conversations they had with the attorneys during those meetings or that meeting, um, that that was all, it, it should be protected from, you know, by attorney client privilege and the people shouldn't get to know about it because the meeting, according to them, was, quote, replete with questions a client would ask his or her attorney about how to comply with the law and candid answers and guidance by the commission's attorneys. Well, uh, the court points out this demonstrates that the meeting involved the core business of the commission. Um, and while such advice might otherwise be privileged as a communication from an attorney, any such privilege must yield to the constitutional requirement that the commission conduct all of its business in open meetings. Now, I want to go on and continue to share some um, really good information that happened. Um, throughout here, but the problem, there is a problem. And uh, with this opinion, uh, one of the biggest problems is that in the end, the court said, okay, that meeting should have been in public. So the plaintiffs went on that. Um, you requested 10 memoranda to be disclosed to the public and they refused to disclose any of them. Um, unfortunately, the Supreme Court only ordered that seven of those memoranda be disclosed to the public. They're claiming that the other three would be uh, protected by some sort of privilege and not required. However, the Supreme Court's own arguments here would apply to those other three memoranda as well. Um, so the first one, um, let's see. Okay, well... Yeah, I'll come back to that. Um, oh, yeah, those are two things that I want to talk about. <clears throat> um, so, again, I want to give props to the Michigan Attorney General because the Michigan Attorney General, apparently, uh, in that opinion... Uh, came out and said that the public, uh, the publication requirement of the, the Michigan um, uh, Constitution is broad and does not appear to contain any limitation on publication of the materials used to develop the plan. So the Michigan Attorney General's office was arguing that the meeting should have been open and all of that information should have been disclosed to the public which I will give them props at that office for coming to that conclusion, because that is correct. Um, so let's see, let me fast forward through some of the boring stuff that I highlighted. Um, 
Oh, let's see. So basically, part of it is they're arguing, well, what's a supporting document? What is supporting material? Um, because it's supporting material that has to be disclosed to the public. Well, materials that advise against change or that are simply considered when determining whether to make a change can be part of a de developmental process. And the whole public hearing process seems to be geared to enable change to happen. That's why you have to have all those um, meetings in this new process. Um, so let me see. So with regard to um, the memorandum, the first memorandum that the court says, no, they don't have to disclose that. Um, the commission describes this memorandum as follows. It is attorney-client communication and attorney work product providing interpretation and legal advice with associated risks and penalties outlined regarding constitutional restrictions on individual commissioner behavior. So the court then says that this memorandum has no direct bearing on the plans or how they were formed. Rather, the memorandum deals with the individual interests and behavior of the commissioners themselves. I would say, uh, first of all, I want to point out that the, the court points out in a later footnote that they took the commission's word for it when it comes to what the subject of the memorandum was, what the language of the memorandum actually entailed. So we don't know what's actually in there. The commission got to just describe the memorandum and the court just said, okay, we'll go with that description. I have a problem with that. Um, the, um, the commission or the court also um, is saying that um, it's talking about constitutional restrictions on individual commissioner behavior. To me, we're talking about it's either related directly to their job in that role as a commissioner on this commission or um, as a private citizen, in which case, why would that kind of information and advice be given uh, to commissioners on the taxpayer's dime if it has something to do with them and their private role as a citizen? No, it's in their role as a commissioner. So what they can do, what they must do, what they cannot do um, as an individual commissioner, um, because there would be some sort of risks or ramifications or penalties because there's a specific constitutional restriction upon that commissioner um, to behave in that particular way. Well, I would think that the public has every right to know uh, what the information was being conveyed and how the commission is being told to behave. That goes right to the heart of the openness and transparency of this whole process. If the commission is being told they can post or can't post certain information on social media, if they're told they can have conversations with members of the public or they can answer emails or phone calls by members of the public, or they're told they can't do that information, they can't provide that kind of information to the public, they can't engage the public in, in that kind of way, the public should know that because, first of all, if they are being given that advice, if they can't um, be open about the process or provide information as an individual serving on that board, 
that's not true. And that should be stopped. But how can that be stopped if that can't even come to light that that's the advice and uh, information that they've been given? Hopefully that makes sense what I'm saying here. But I think it's bad. It's flawed reasoning and logic on that point. Um, the other two memorandums that the, um, the court said did not need to be shared were from March 2nd of 2021 and May 25th, 2021. Um, regarding the same litigation. So again, earlier I mentioned that the commission um, tried to get the Supreme Court earlier in 2021 to give them additional time and to completely disregard the, the timelines by, set by the constitution by which they have to put these plans in place and have these meetings. And uh, the, the court noted on page three of this opinion that the commission didn't follow the timelines at all, even though the court already said to them, guess what? I don't carry your reasoning. It's not persuasive. You need to do your job according to the constitution. They didn't. So the first of these is um, where the commission adopted a resolution to authorize the attorney to um to basically get that um, extension or dismissal of, of the, the deadlines in the constitution. So the first of these is before asking uh, where they decided to, to let the attorney file this lawsuit um, earlier in 2021, asking the Supreme Court to give them a pass on the timelines or deadlines. And the second one is where the um, the attorney provided the update on the Michigan Supreme Court petition and the next steps. To me, that should have been public information. If you're going to vote to give an attorney the um, the go ahead to go to the Supreme Court and ask the court to set aside your constitutional obligations and duties. Why should any of that be private? Why would the court even have jurisdiction? I wouldn't think the court has any jurisdiction to set aside the deadlines imposed on the commission by the constitution itself. Their whole power only exists because of what the state constitution uh, gave to them. And as part and parcel with that power, they have to exercise it in a certain manner. And if they can't be open and disclose information and hold their meetings in the public eye, and on top of that, they're going to miss all their stinking deadlines and they want the court to set aside their deadlines completely. Why does this commission even exist? They're unelected. There's no transparency built into this process except for all of those pieces that they are violating when they're doing this redistricting. Anyway, um, the court said that these last two memoranda I talked about relate to specific litigation. Um, <clears throat> so that the two memoranda relate to the specific litigation would not prevent their disclosure if they were materials that supported the development of a map. But the action itself did not directly involve either the substance of the maps or the actual mechanics for drawing the maps. And I would argue, as I'm sure I'm hoping somebody in this case did, 
Of course it goes right to their job. It goes right to the heart of what they're doing. If they're saying, could you please excuse us from not doing part of our job that the constitution requires us to do in the manner that the constitution is requiring us to do it? That goes to the heart of the process by which this whole map is being developed. So of course it goes to the mechanics of drawing up the maps if they're not doing it in the way that the constitution tells them they have to do it. I don't understand the, the philosophy or the, the logic behind the court, um, you know, in how they came to that conclusion. I don't understand. Um, so I, I would completely disagree with the court on that, especially um, when you look at, um, give me just a second here. I want to point us back to, um, so earlier uh, the court uh, talked about People v. Whitney. It's a Michigan Court of Appeals case from 1998, and it quoted that case. Um, as saying, it would be illogical to construe the attorney-client privilege exception to the OMA as authorizing a public body to evade the open meetings requirement of the OMA merely by involving a written opinion from an attorney in the substantive discussion of the matter of public policy for which no other ex exemption in the OMA would allow a closed meeting. So you can't just say, well, the attorney provided us advice on, on part of this, so now we get to go into closed session, or now we get to withhold information from being released, which would actually be more of the a FOIA issue than an OMA issue. But um, in, return, in, in terms of having the meeting open to the public, um, even the court is, as early as 1998 has said, it would be illogical to say you could just make something privileged for the government and against allowing the public to know about it simply because you had an attorney involved giving information and advice on it. Well, then why apply that information or that logic to uh, the two memoranda that came about the, the case, especially the one where the court said, no, we're not going to give you a pass. The litigation is essentially over. Where do you appeal it to? You can't. It's the Michigan Supreme Court. So I don't understand why that um, uh, thought process doesn't then uh, convey to the rest of the, the, the memorandum, <clears throat> especially the one that then talks about the individual commissioner behavior and the constitutional restrictions against that. Again, just because the attorney is giving them that information or that advice doesn't mean that that information should be privileged. No, the public has a right to know how um, governmental, um, you know, agents or, or elected officials or unelected bureaucrats, such in this case, how they're being advised by legal counsel to act. They have a right to know what that advice um, is. But um, anyway, as part of this flawed logic, What's interesting is that the court says that courts generally have construed open meetings, open files, whistleblower, and similar statutes as subject to the attorney-client privilege, recognizing that otherwise governments would be at an unfair disadvantage in litigation, in handling claims, and in negotiations. Now, I would say there's a couple of problems with that. Number one, they're, they're bringing in and talking about um, applying attorney-client privilege in the context of like open meetings 
statutes. No, this isn't a statute. This is the Michigan State Constitution. It goes above and beyond what any statute or common law tries to do. In fact, if the court pays attention to their earlier wording, common law and statutes have to yield to the, uh, the Constitution. The Constitution is what goes above and beyond um, overall. Uh, but also, um, it says that it, you know, the, this is because the courts have recognized the attorney-client privilege for government bodies because um, otherwise governments would be at an unfair disadvantage in litigation, in handling claims, and in negotiations. Quite frankly, no, that's not the case, number one. And number two, I don't care if somebody thinks the government is at a disadvantage when it comes to um, um, arguing against, um, you know, giving information to the public. The When you have litigation against a government entity, and yes, I've been involved in several occasions um, to um, sue or be part of another's lawsuit to sue the government for um, uh, hiding information or um, having an, a closed meeting when it should have been open or something of that nature. In the end, again, we, we should look back to that other comment I read earlier that a government attorney, the, the ultimate client in that sense, is often, and I would argue, always the general public. It's not that particular government agent or official. It's not even that government body. No, because that government body or that government agent or that government official's ultimate job is to represent the people. And the people, um, the general public, have a right to know the information involved. There should be no secrets of government uh, for the purpose of it's an unfair disadvantage in court when somebody in the general public, when a citizen sues the government. I don't care. The unfair disadvantage is to the person who had to bring a lawsuit in the first place because the government isn't doing its damn job. The unfairness comes about when people are having their freedoms squashed and trampled on in a variety of aspects because uh, the next up government official or the, the next up uh, governmental body that has oversight or even the courts involved at every step along the way, uh, just give them a pass and say, no, I'm not going to get involved or no, I'm not going to stop them or worse yet. They say, oh no, they're allowed to totally trample your rights because of COVID or because of attorney client privilege or whatever the garbage is that they're throwing at us these days. Our rights are being trampled upon and we, the people, are at a severe disadvantage in litigation and in everyday stinking life because the government's allowed to just do whatever they want for whatever reason and get away with it. I don't care if they're at a supposed disadvantage when a citizen finally has the gumption and the wherewithal and the resources to bring them to court to put a stop to it. They should be at a disadvantage because they don't exist as an entity all into their own with their own private interests to protect. Their interests should be in the same exact alignment with the public, the general public in the first place. The government's job is to protect our interests, to protect our freedoms. Which brings me back 
to that constitutional provision that I brought up earlier, uh, the preamble of the U.S. Constitution, the preamble of the Florida Constitution, and certainly and most clearly stated, the preamble of the of the Michigan State Constitution, the job of the government, the whole job, the whole reason why we have a constitution is because we are grateful to Almighty God for the blessings of freedom, and we earnestly desire to secure those blessings undiminished to ourselves and our posterity. So we are ordaining and establishing a constitution, a system of government by which we will all agree to participate in a system that has to be followed per the constitution not these rules that they each get to make up in their own agencies. No, the system of government put into place by the people through the Constitution to protect our liberties, our blessings of, of freedom that are given to us by God. So to me, that is what underscores this all. So overall, this case was a big win for freedom. But um, and there's some great things that the, the court points out here. But it's still a loss uh, because it missed the mark um, on those three memorandum, which um, who knows, maybe themselves that they, they, they wouldn't have done much of a difference for the public to know about, but we won't ever get to know. So um, with that being said, I reserved that to the end of this video because I knew it would take me long to go through that. And quite frankly, I didn't even get to go through all that I wanted to share with you. Um, let me just make sure there was nothing else that I'm going to... Um, um, nothing that I wanted to say, but um, uh, I will close this out by saying, you know, the court reminds us in their conclusion that the voters in 2018 changed the process for redistricting in Michigan. In doing so, they established numerous safeguards to ensure that the new process would be transparent, as all government should be. Uh, today, we enforce two of those provisions against the commission's attempt to operate outside of public view. And so um, they are ordering that uh, the records of that meeting be um, disclosed to the public and that the seven memoranda be disclosed to the public. Uh, in fact, all documents and other materials must immediately be turned over to plaintiffs and be made public. And the filing of a motion for rehearing shall not stay execution or enforcement of this judgment. It is very important that the court said that because obviously the government or the commission in this case is going to try to stall and file a motion for reconsideration and everything else. And um, that can some, sometimes um, put a pause on the judgment of the court. But this court said, no, no, no matter what else you're going to ask us to do, this is effective immediately under no ands, ifs or buts. You must give the information uh, to the public. And it's interesting, too, that the court notes um, that the language of the Constitution, this is the language of the Michigan State Constitution, the powers granted to the commission are legislative functions not subject to the control or approval of the legislature and are exclusively reserved to the commission. And I guess for that, um, I want to point out that the U.S. Constitution guarantees us a Republican form of government and sets out that framework that legislative functions are, be, are to be performed by legislative bodies. 
elected legislative bodies. It is not a Republican form of government to have an unelected body in plain language, perform legislative functions. It's just not, it's not appropriate. So uh, that amendment to our state constitution itself is unconstitutional. Um, but um, also it's interesting and something to keep in mind. The dissent was emphasizing the number of meetings and hearings that the commission has held. And the, the majority said, that's beside the point. No number of open meetings and hearings can make up for the commission's concealing that which must be disclosed. That's a very important point. If you do something wrong over here, if you don't give us information, you hold a meeting in public or in, in private, uh, whatever the case may be, you can't just remedy that by giving us this other information or holding these other meetings. It doesn't matter. All of it must be open to the public and disclosed to the public. Um, it's also very interesting that, um, and the court says, it is worth noting that the drafters of this constitutional provisions, uh, voters, not politicians, apparently do not agree that the commission would be, uh, have their job, uh, you know, taken away or, or kneecapped by disclosure by all of the requested in information materials. Uh, they quoted the Voters Not Politicians own website that says, voters established the commission to bring redistricting out into the open. Anything that informs the commission's mapping decisions should be made public. So that's a very important point. Um, and um, um, anyway, there's some other stuff that would be important to note later on. Um, but again, um, I think one of the most important um, pieces here, there's, there's two. Um, one is... <clears throat> They, that the, the court says our constitution, our state constitution is unique and our obligation, the court's obligation, is to protect and defend the Michigan constitution. That should say it all with regardless what kind of case we might talk about in the future. Uh, with whatever may happen with any kind of government entity, the court should always remember their job is to protect and defend the Michigan Constitution. That includes deciding to hear cases that they might otherwise say, well, we don't really want to hear this case. Uh, and um, also um, that um, the the dissent was arguing that all of this was happening very quickly and that it shouldn't have happened this way. It was, it was happening in haste. But the court points out that um, this is an emergency case and they heard it and they decided it on an expedited basis, which only serves, well, if they had delayed it anymore, that delay would only serve to hinder the public's ability to consider the materials before the impending close of public of the public comment period, which is December 27th, um, just a week or so ago. Um, so, in fact, the court said we have not acted in haste, but instead we have worked to ensure that the public's constitutional right to this information is vindicated in a timely and meaningful manner. So, again, it is super important to keep that in mind and underscore that 
The public always has that right to information. Um, and whether we're talking about the Open Meetings Act or the Freedom of Information Act or the Constitution itself, um, there's stuff out there that um, there's hope to be had. I'll put it that way, uh, because it's definitely uh, a done deal that the government is there to serve the public and the information that they rely upon in doing that job uh, is something that should be disclosed to the public. So with that being said, <laughs> with that being said, um, uh, remember the challenge I gave to you this week to get to know who your state representative is and uh, the kinds of things that are important to them, the kinds of bills that they support and uh, that they sponsor and introduce. Uh, remember those three tools and resources that I provided to you earlier um, that are also in the description of the video. And um, keep in mind that even though this faith, uh, this fight for freedom is um, very long and uh, challenging and disheartening at many times along the way, we each need to remember that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So uh, with that being said, I hope you all uh, enjoyed the information uh, and were able to learn from the information that I provided tonight and uh, today. Um, and hopefully I will have the lighting better figured out in my new office setup. Uh, for the next one, which will be um, hopefully next Monday or Tuesday morning. Thank you all. Have a great night.